Welcome to the For Love and Money podcast, the show where business and social purpose meet to inspire a movement for positive change. Here's your host, Carolyn Butler-Madden. Okay, my guest today has a long career in sustainability in Europe, USA, Japan and Australia. Carsten Primdahl is a sustainability ESG business project and people manager. He is Chief Sustainability Officer and co-founder of Certify, an organisation that he co-founded in 2021. Carsten is also author of the book, Roadmap to Modern Slavery Compliance. He's a supply chain risk specialist um, and a CSR and sustainability advisor, and he has extensive experience in assisting businesses from all over, Europe, USA, Japan, Australia, and elsewhere, in risk mitigation and compliance in supply chain. Carsten, welcome to the For Love and Money podcast. Thank you, Carolyn. Very pleased to be here. Thank you for having me. Good to have you here. So let's kick off. Um, I want to ask you the first question is, what, what does purpose mean to you? Well, I think purpose is, uh, is, is uh, I mean, we all have to have purpose in our lives and uh, um, for, for me, purpose means that I do something that I uh, really like that, and something that has a positive impact on, uh, on uh, my family, first of all, of course, uh, but also the planet and, uh, and the people around me, and including the people who manufacture the stuff that I'm using uh, on a daily basis. So, so I think that's kind of how I would define purpose. Thank you. Uh, and you you talked about um, doing things that you like, so that so it rolls quite nicely into my next question, which is, um, what's your perspective on the idea, the role of love in business? I think, of course, uh, um, love is a sort of a, a loaded word, right? Uh, but uh, in this context, I think it's a uh, for me, it's about uh, doing what I love. Um, yeah, I've made a decision to work in this field, not for the ability to make uh, a lot of money or, or, or that kind of decision. I've, I've made that decision because this is something I really like. And I think we all need to have that kind of uh, motivator to, to do well and to, to deliver our best. So yeah. I, I think that's, that's how I would say that it fits into, yeah. into business. Thank you. Thank you. And I guess, yeah, it's, it's, it's about um, really caring about what you're doing, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, uh, and I, I really deeply care about that. Um, so, yeah, I, I would say well, I, I love what I do. <laughs> yeah, I and love. obviously, I've, you know, I've looked at your background and that you've got a long career in sustainability. So, so sustainability has become very, very relevant in recent times, but this is something that you've been involved with, you know, over a long period in your career. So yes. it clearly comes from a place of passion. Oh, it's a, it's it's something that comes from uh, from yeah, way back when I was just about to say when I was a kid, uh, I was always very concerned with uh, what was right and what wasn't right. And my grandfather was a policeman, um, and so I was always, initially it was about you know you have to follow the law and you have to do what's right and what don't don't be don't be a baddie and <laughs> be a goodie instead, right? But that sort of obviously evolves as you grow older and you realize that there's more aspects to it than just 
putting people in jail or not putting people in jail. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, it, it evolved. But um, but that's sort of the early stages. Uh, initially, I started out um, working with. Uh, actually, my first job out of university was in the oil industry. So that's not a very sustainable business. Oh wow! But, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a. Uh, it, it that was many years ago, and it was in Denmark. I'm, I'm originally from Denmark, and uh, the oil industry in Denmark. Uh, came out of a need for, after the oil shock in the 70s. So there was a, a sustainability aspect to it, although the, the greenhouse effect wasn't really considered uh, at that stage. Um, it was more about energy supplies and, and sustainable energy supplies at a, at a, at a good price point. Uh, but I'd say that we, we still did uh, follow some sustainability principles because the license to actually uh, get the oil field up and running because we, we developed an oil field in the North Sea and the license to get that had some environmental criteria attached to it uh, that we very stringently needed to, to follow. Um, and they had uh, recently made it uh, illegal to flare all the gas that came up. Uh, the oil industry used to just flare the gas and only take the oil. Uh, mm -hmm. and we were not allowed to do that. So we had to put all sorts of measures in place to make sure that that didn't happen. And then there was all sorts of uh, uh, issues around contamination, that there was uh, limits of how much uh, hydrocarbon you allowed or oil was allowed to be in the, the wastewater that went into the sea. Uh, so it had to be basically really, really clean. Um, but of course, from a CO2 And this was back in the 70s. No, no, I, 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 no. That was uh, that was in uh, the nineties. Uh, right. I got okay. my first job out of university. Yeah, I, I was born in the seventies. <laughs> I, I was going to say what? <laughs> yeah, no, no. The, the oil crisis obviously was in in the seventies. Um, got you. Okay. Uh, and then a lot of Northern Europe uh, did a big effort in trying to make uh, themselves just uh, independent of oil uh, resources from elsewhere. Okay, that, that fantastic. Was I was scratching my head. I was scratching my <laughs> yeah. head thinking. No, I'm not that old. <laughs> you can't. Well, how does that work, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so no. that's where you that's where you started. Um, I'd yeah. love you to share your journey. You know, I'd love to understand how you've come to be doing what you're doing today. Yeah. yeah so, so I started out like uh, any other uh, university student. Uh, finding my way in the world, trying to find my, my, my first job. And I pretty quickly became aware that uh, I wanted to do something different. And uh, I, uh, after the oil company, so I, I was working in an engineering business and uh, um, I was responsible for developing some markets uh, in uh, mostly third world countries at that stage, India, um, uh, Southeast Asia, uh, Japan, etc. Um, and I, on one of the journeys out there. So, so what, what we did was we would help for a fee uh, companies get their products certified to sell into Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's an automotive engineering company and you can't just sell like brake pads in without some sort of certification. You need to make sure that the product is fit for purpose, especially yep. in, in vehicles that are dangerous if they don't have brakes. Right? So, so we would help uh, manufacturers in, the, in these countries with uh, getting their product certified to European standards so that they could actually market them. And uh, on one of the visits uh, to India, where I was uh, meeting with a factory, I, um, a factory making brake pads, I uh, arrived at the factory in the morning and these kind of factory visits, they always have the same sort of pattern. You start out with a nice uh, meeting with the management, a cup of tea, some sweets, um, and then they offer you a tour of the factories to really showcase how great they are. 
the managing director handed me over to somebody else, probably his nephew or something, um, and uh, and and they started the factory tour. And we walk into this uh, factory hall, which is uh, I don't know about 100, 120 square meters, and there would have been probably about 100 people in there uh, sitting there hunched over workstations. Uh, there's no natural light, uh, no electric lights. Um, uh, they had some skylights in the ceiling, uh, like uh, what's called a plastic, uh, those kind of plastic skylights, but they were totally sooty. So there's not a lot of light coming in. And these people just sitting there and it was dusty and it was dirty. And most of them were bare feet because it was warm. And um, I'm looking at this and I'm like, oh, what's going on here? And I said, um, what's material is it that you're using? They were sitting grinding these brake pads because when they come out of the mold, they have some edges that needs to be ground off before you can actually fit them onto the vehicles or package them up. And say, oh, this is a, this is asbestos. Um, oh my god! Some sort of asbestos compound. Yeah. Um, <laughs> take a step back. I'm like, I'm not sure I want to go into that room. Um, but then I pretty quickly also realized, hang on, these people, 100 people I can see through the door, they're, they're in there probably 12, 14 hours every day. Uh, and they don't get to, to, to choose whether they want to go in or not. Or maybe they do get to choose, but then the choice is between having a job and not having a job. Um, and uh, that made me think that these people, they are probably making not a lot um, in terms of salary or, or, or uh, compensation for the work that they're doing, they're essentially signing over their health to uh, in return for a very pittance uh, of money. And uh, who knows whether uh, how many of those people are even alive today? Right? It's uh, that's that's wow. twenty years ago, um, and and that just made me think. Um, I mean, there's other examples, of course, as well in in factories around. Uh, these uh, so-called low-cost low sourcing nations where you're thinking, wow, that looks really, really dangerous what they're doing there. I wonder what kind of insurance they would have to cover them later on if something happens. And that's probably, again, this is probably, probably none not at all. Probably none at all, yeah. So, and this, so was, this was around, when was this, Carsten? That was in 2000. Yeah, wow. Um, so so it's, it's not that long ago. And, and things have changed, um, but, but still... Um, was there, and, the, the, and then the other thing that happened was that the, the, the guy who was showing me around, he, he saw the look on my face and he said, but don't worry, don't worry, we're not going to sell asbestos product into Europe. Said, well, that doesn't really make it a lot better, right? I mean, you sell asbestos to your own population, they're okay with using this product that killed them, but the, the rich Europeans don't want it. Um, look, I think we're, that, that's that's. I think that's not uh, that's not really the morally at the acceptable to me. Something like this happening, and so you either got to be following the same strict uh, requirements towards everybody or nobody, right? And that's your own moral that dictates whether you want to do that and the law of the country. Um, mm. and, and not, it's not always as dangerous as asbestos, right? But, uh, but there's lots of other examples that, that could happen. <laughs> so, so, so that was a real moment of truth for you, yeah, I yes. imagine. Yeah, that, what, I, that what, was an eye-opener. Yeah, so what, what happened? What came out of that? 
Well, then I uh, basically I continued uh, a little bit in the same tracks that I'd already been in. I, was, I still still worked in compliance, uh, but product compliance, um, and and I saw more situations like this. And um, th then eventually I got an opportunity to move to Japan, and I lived in Japan for a period of time. And I, I realized I really want to do something about this. Um, so especially because uh, my, on a personal level, my father actually died from a cancer caused by asbestos. Wow. Uh, and that made me think, uh, you know, this, uh, and, and he didn't work with asbestos at all. He never did. Uh, but so he would probably just have inhaled it walking on the street. And that just made me think, oh, this is, this is not right. This is something we need to stop. And there's still, you know, promoting asbestos in all of these countries, Indonesia, Vietnam, et cetera, in building products because it's cheap and it's efficient. And as long as you don't touch it too much, you don't inhale the, the dust, then it's, you know, it's safe as long as you don't touch, touch, touch it. But it's a bit unrealistic to expect that to happen. So, so it, it made me want to do something. So I educated myself as a, a social auditor for factory audits. Um, and uh, I, I did a five-day training in Bulgaria and Sofia in Bulgaria um, and, um, and, and got the certification for what they call the social uh, audit uh, Rolls-Royce standard, uh, mm -hmm. which is called the Social Accountability um, uh, SA8000 is the name of the standard in the same way as ISO 9000, ISO 14000 for environment, etc. So social accountability, they've made their own standard and it's considered the, the sort of the gold standard in this field. Um, and, and I educated myself in that. And then that uh, subsequently led on to uh, running a project in China where I helped a, a large European uh, retailer, a big supermarket chain, uh, set up their social compliance program in China with their supplier base. So it started with a pilot project, worked with 50 factories for one year. Straight off, we, we had to hire eight people. I had to hire eight people in China to help me uh, run these programs uh, on site in factories. And, and our approach was different because we took the capacity building approach rather than just the, the carrot and stick approach, which is audits. Um, mm. Most, most uh, factories or most uh, buyers will, will use audits extensively to, to check that uh, the situation is as they expect. But um, audit also have the tendency to drive issues underground, um, right? So, so that's uh, that that's not the it's it's too single sided just just to do audits. There's a place for audits, but the, you have to apply more um, other methodologies as well to improve the situation. And one of these is capacity building. So, so we basically work with these fifty factories, visit them every two weeks. Uh, help them improve their systems, help them produce their, uh, improve their uh, production planning systems, um, uh, engaging with their workers, uh, calculating their wages in the right way, um, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it was a very interesting time and it, it built up some, uh, some, some experience that, um, that, yeah, I'm very fortunate to have. So... I mean, presumably with this, you were you were looking at bringing um, a certain level of ethical standards yes. into, into their supply chain. That's right. Um, first of all, when was this? And what I'm interested in understanding is how did it go down, that, that, manage, that balancing between profit and ethics? Yeah. 
So we so this uh, project, this particular project, started in early two thousand eight in China. Yeah. But I, I did the training in in uh, Bulgaria in two thousand seven. Um, yeah. And um, I'm sure there was a profit uh, element to it because I would find it very hard to believe that that particular client and many other clients for that matter would actually spend this kind of money on projects like this if it didn't actually also drive some project, some profits. Uh, or perhaps if you look at it from the other side, that it cost the money if they didn't. Yes. Uh, so whether it's actually capturing an opportunity or mitigating a risk, I think it's probably the mitigation side that they did at that stage, whereas mm-hmm. I think now that's changing into being just as much about opportunity. Yeah. Um, so, so and and like in any organization um i think you have people who are strongly for and you have some that are not as uh, as on board yet um and that was the case in this organization as well they they had some that really wanted to drive it and they had some that were a little bit more relaxed and reluctant and wanted to take it a little bit more slow so um but but bottom line still is that if if it didn't have an impact on them somehow financially then i would have some serious doubts as to whether they would have actually spent this kind of money on it yeah um, because it wasn't it wasn't cheap it's not cheap to set up a, a nine person organization in china <laughs> i can i can well imagine i can well yeah. imagine it but it sounds like their um their mindset was um ahead of the market at the time yes they were they were some of the early movers on this yeah. uh, i would say So without naming any names it's it's actually funny because there's always a tendency to to you know um go out in the in the market and scold the ones who are uh, perhaps perceived to be the bad ones and then heap lots of praise on the ones who are perceived to be the good ones but it's not actually always like that and in this particular situation it was exactly the opposite this was a discount retailer and people are saying how can you how can you sell a pair of jeans for five dollars um, uh, without you know making sure that the or without having some exploitation and that might be true um, but they're also the first ones to actually spend money on on looking into how do we solve this whereas a lot of the mm. other ones who had profiles in the market already didn't spend money on it mm. um, so so say whether that was foresight or whether there was market pressure or whether it was a combination Uh, it's hard to say right but uh, but at the end of the day I, i think the good part was that it moved forward it moved the needle at least a little yeah. bit <laughs> yeah. so it yeah. the working conditions for the yeah. for the workers Absolutely. in those factories so, Absolutely. Yeah. and so so that's 2008 so where to from there yeah then i worked uh, in china for a, a number of years um in 2012 end of 2012 my family and i we decided to relocate to australia And uh, when I arrived in Australia, I thought that uh, there's going to be a need for these kind of things because of these kind of services, because European businesses are buying them. So why wouldn't Australian businesses be buying them? So I came here initially trying to set that up. It was a little bit of a hard slug initially to get Australian businesses on board. But uh, fortunately, I still had some good contacts in Europe. So it was possible <laughs> to, to continue servicing Uh, European clients um, based on that uh, until the Australian businesses caught on. But in Australia, I think the real sort of uh, uptake of ESG issues have been in the last two to three years when mm-hmm. um, 
when especially when uh, the Modern Slavery Act came into force, um, and first of all was uh, was uh, announced, and then when it came into force, uh, we're now sort of in the second uh, iteration of the reporting uh, cycles for most of the reporting entities, and and that basically means that the, a lot of them are starting to look. <gasps> Oh, hang on, what are we going to write this year? We can't write the same as last year. What did we do? What can we do? How do we actually go out and fulfill our obligations here <laughs> without just being waffly and, and issuing empty promises? Right? And that sort of leads us up to here today. In, in, uh, in the meantime, I've been uh, working with various different large Australian organisations, um, helping with the uh, trade compliance and, and sustainability issues. Uh, worked in, a, in one of the big four banks. I worked with one of the big four consultancies for periods of time, and um, uh, worked for a period of time with one of the airlines as well. And then the Catholic Church. And now I'm uh, up to uh, basically founding this business, certified. So. And, and we're going to get to that in a moment, but yeah, you skipped yeah. over something and you touched on modern slavery, but um, mm. you wrote your second book, Roadmap to Modern Slavery, um, which came out only a couple of years ago. So, yeah. so tell, tell, tell us a little bit about that. Yes. So um, Roadmap to Modern Slavery and uh, Sustainable Supply Chain um, came out in uh, 2019, 2000, no, 2020 it came out. So it's two years now. Um, so yeah, time flies and all of a sudden they get mixed up. And my first book came out in 2015, end of 2015. So uh, I wrote that book because I, first of all, could see that the act was coming. And second of all, because I wanted to get, you know, my version of story of the story out there, my experience in the supply chain out there, uh, because I, I found that there's a tendency to focus on, on certain aspects of, of uh, what we can do at the moment modern slavery is very much driven by human rights lawyers mm-hmm. um, and uh, and the, all respect for human rights lawyers they're wonderful people they have a keen interest in this area but they, they haven't necessarily been working with the factories on the site um, so i think that there's a case to be made that if you want to address an issue you need to have all the relevant skills in the same way as military platoon where you have somebody who was responsible for radio communication and somebody who was responsible for medical and somebody who was responsible for whatever arts, artillery. Or something. I, never was, I was never in the military myself, so I, I can't speak like an expert, but I know that there's a division of labor. Right? And I think the same yeah. thing applies here. Uh, we need to make sure that we have the right skill sets for the right jobs uh, so that we can actually solve these issues because that's what matters. But, but what Absolutely. Really matters what really matters is that we need to help the victims, right? I mean, it's a, it's a business imperative, but uh, it's, it's, it's about at the end of the day or at the beginning of everything or at the end of the day, whichever way we want to look at it, it's about the victim, about making sure that the victims can be freed and that they can get on with their lives in a way that uh, allow them to, to, to live a fruitful life like we all want. And if that means that the business ends up doing good as well in the same situation then that's to me is an added bonus Um, and that that i mean your your book came out at at exactly the right time obviously tell us about the modern slavery act when when did that come into force and and what what is the expectation from it yeah so the modern slavery act came into force on the 1st of january um 2020 it was agreed about a year and a half uh, before that 
um, and then enacted. And basically what it does is that it sets a threshold for large businesses, not just Australian businesses, but any business who operates in Australia, uh, to report if their revenue, global revenue, uh, exceeds a certain threshold. That threshold is $100 million. So if uh, a big um, say a company from my home country, Denmark, uh, has more than $100, billion, $100 million Australian dollar turnover, uh, and they have a small office in Australia but with only a little turnover, they still have to report here. Yeah. Um, so so the, the act actually uh, captures both Australian business and external which is good um, and it's intended to to drive transparency it's a it's a law that ob obliges businesses to op to disclose what kind of risks they see in their business when it comes to modern slavery and disclose what they're doing to address the risk and to disclose some sort of measure on the effectiveness because the the, the understanding is that you can't address an issue which is hidden without mm. trying to improve your transparency. So, so that's what that law is about. And it's uh, basically, it's, it's trying to put, you know, cascade the responsibility from large businesses onto smaller businesses. Because if you want to report, you want to make sure that your suppliers are also giving you the information that you need to report, uh, which is why they're cascading it onto, on, down, the, down the chain. And um, so far, there's been both good and bad examples of, of uh, statements mostly bad unfortunately oh really <laughs> well look it's it, well it's easy to be critical and at the end of the day it's about having the right information available right? and that hasn't the systems are not really set up for that yet uh, so it's understandable that the statements are not really at the 100 yet but but then again there's also a lot who just submit a one-page statement saying we do not have slavery and if you submit a one-page statement, it's hard to address the risk. It's hard to say what you've done. And, and that becomes more of a sort of a statutory declaration. We don't have slavery mm. or we don't condone it. But who does? At the end of the day, nobody does, right? Um, yeah. Un unless you're part of a criminal syndicate. But um, <laughs> that's... So it's about, it's about doing the work, the deep work. That's right. To really right. uncover all the threads yes. in your organisation right. and start to address the problem rather than just tick boxes exactly exactly it's about it's about understanding it's about prying open that box and start looking inside and figuring out what is it that we're looking at that level we haven't quite reached yet uh, at the moment it's very much about what is the inherent risk level for example looking at the, what is the country risk of buying textile from bangladesh uh, and everybody will say that's high but that is not necessarily the case for your particular factory, right? Mm. It's, it's, it's um, every factory, every business is slightly different. So cutting everybody across the same template, um, so to speak, is, uh, is a bit simplifying, yeah. simpli simplification. And that, that doesn't really work, I think. So, and it, it, it seems to me it's a mindset shift. Um, and, and we're going through this huge mindset shift with business, aren't we? Yes. Where, you know, the role of business has always been or ha has been for the last 50 years about maximising profit, maximising shareholder return. Yeah. And this shift that is taking place, which is being driven by the market, is no, business has to serve all stakeholders. Profit is important, yeah. but it can't be the driving force 
you know, at the cost of other stakeholders. So um, this mindset shift is never going to happen overnight, is it? It, It's no. (laughs) We're going to need a few generations maybe to die, or a generation to die out. But there are there are some very forward thinking companies who are showing us that you know business can do the right thing and can be successful. Yes. As a result. I, I totally agree. I think it's a, it, it is about shifting the mindset. I think the majority of people are starting to, to shift the mindset now. And what we've seen recently as well is that whereas 10 years ago, this was very much an issue of mitigating risk, uh, mm-hmm. a risk to the business. Now it's become an issue of it's still about mitigating risk, but it's also about making sure that uh, investors are still willing to invest uh, because there's becoming more and more prevalent that investors are looking into these kind of risks. So how are you managing these risks? And if mm. you're not, then your business might essentially be too risky for us mm. um, because it's, it's, it's a matter of, of knowing the risk and managing as big a proportion of the overall risk as possible, not just tiny little snippets here and there or just financial risk um, or whatever other risk it is that they're looking at. And then the other part of it is that, um, and that's sort of the, perhaps you could even use it as a revenue driver or or at least as a revenue preserver, um, that um, if if you have these controls in place that you can manage this risk, then you also know your, your supply chain a lot better. And by knowing your supply chain better, you can also make improvements. Uh, and that's where the opportunity side comes in. And if you can actually start capitalizing on some of these uh, opportunities, then you are doing good by doing good. And who doesn't want to do that? I mean, mm. show me somebody who doesn't want to do that, then I'll be very surprised <laughs> if anybody can show me somebody who don't want to do that. I mean, one of, the, one of the examples that I've, I've heard very recently is one of the big mining companies who um, here in Australia who decided to to go in and, and, and uh, implement a system that could uh, certify or validate that the product was uh, made under certain labor conditions. And uh, they actually managed by doing that and by guaranteeing that to their customers, they were able to not only gain market share, but they could also gain a price premium. So, say so I'm not going to get into the exact numbers that I heard, but uh, but just as an example, say if you can gain 10% market share and a 3% premium, yeah, um, then you then you won. <laughs> so, yeah, um, just by doing that, and 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 then people say, yeah, but this is hugely expensive and. Well, yes, it is usually expensive if you go with the uh, McKinsey to do it for you, uh, but uh, you don't need McKinsey to do all these things. Don't need people who are just sitting in their uh, in their ivory towers and and doing all the theoretical stuff. Um, you need people on the ground. They're not necessarily that expensive. And even so, it's not about putting in a team of twenty people. It, it yeah. perhaps one or two. So it's looking at it in a different way, and I think this yeah. brings us nicely to your current venture, Certify. Yeah. So can you can you t- tell us about Certify? Yes, yes, absolutely. Enjoying the podcast? If you're looking for more inspiration, head to our website, thecauseeffect.com.au, for more resources on how you can start using your business as a force for good, or buy the For Love and Money book. 
Every copy sold allows us to protect one square metre of rainforest. Help us save 10,000 square metres by 2025. Certify is a business that uh, I, I co-founded uh, last year with, um, with two Americans. Um, and the idea is that, so I have the sustainability background and they have the, the technology background. And basically we wanted to marry up the skills and, and work to digitize sustainability in a way that we can focus on you know, the really impactful stuff that only humans can do and get the machines to, you know, do all the analysis that, that we don't find very interesting as human beings uh, to do. And there's, there isn't a lot of that out there at the moment. So we want to try to marry those two disciplines into um, a service offering uh, to businesses so that uh, it becomes easier for the sustainability teams to manage their supply base and, uh, not spending time on all the boring tasks, but actually spending their time where time where it matters and where it's interesting. Because as a sustainability individual, I'm I'm working with this area because I because I like it and because because I love it, um, not because of the uh, not because of the rewards that are or the monetary rewards that are involved in it. And I think most people in sustainability come from that background. I mean, there's been a tendency to people in sustainability coming from perhaps more of an NGO background kind of thing, which means that people really love what they do. Um, but, but even so, there's a limit to how much of these kind of basic admin tasks that you can do without yeah. getting bored. Um, yes. <laughs> so, so we want to take that part away and just leave the really interesting stuff uh, to the people so that people can feel, wow, I've really made an impact today. Um, and and that's uh, that, that's the point of, of certified. Um, yeah, brilliant. And so, how do you do that? Well, um, so one of my co-founders, he's a data architect, so he's really really good at uh, you know I, I I share my experience on how do I evaluate a supplier, and then he breaks it down into little pieces of data that is then structured in a way that we can put it into a piece of software that uh, or an algorithm that can help us uh, do some predictive analysis um, on, on, and, and create some dashboards so that, so that uh, people who perhaps don't understand so much about this can you know, gain some base level understanding of it and, and without necessarily having to hire a lot of people like myself or, or other sustainability um, experts um, and, and use the, the resources that they have on you know, on, on asking questions to the more complex cases, because of course there's things you can't automate. Um, yeah. I think sustainability is very much about, it's about getting the documentation in order the data. It's about that intuition um, and, and gut feel you might say. And then of course, also about documenting uh, and validating the, the information you have. And part of it you can automate and part of it you can't. So, so you should automate whatever you can and leave the rest to the, to the team. And the other way we do it is uh, by um, rolling out in Asia Pacific, this training uh, called content boards um, mm -hmm. and uh, content boards is, uh, is, is basically about educating boards and senior executives to understand ESG. Um, so it's called content boards, ESG training. And uh, we kind of think that it all starts with the board and with the management. If there's no buy-in from them, if there's no understanding how important these issues are, then it's not going to move anything in the business. So, I mean, there's resources that are needed. 
there's uh, support that's needed and uh, and and buy-in. Uh, in order to do that, uh, we think that the ESG training for board and executives is a really important thing. So, okay, so we're rolling I'm, go- I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask you um, to to tell us more about that in a moment. But ju- okay. but just for now, ESG, environmental social government, it, it governance. It's a term we're hearing um, much more frequently now. It's become very, very common. But not everybody, uh, I believe, understands the scope of what it is. So so just for someone who's familiar with the term but doesn't really understand deeply what what it means, can you you give an explanation? Yes, absolutely. Um, So essentially the E is for environment, the S is for social, and G is for governance, like you said. But under each of those three buckets there's uh, or pillars, there's some additional uh, issues. So, for example, under environment, uh, you have issues of waste and waste reduction, waste disposal. You have issues of carbon, like CO2 emissions uh, and greenhouse gases. Uh, you have safe management of chemicals. You have uh, oceans and uh, and land and, and land rights under social, uh, say the land rights that I just mentioned on the environmental kind of spills over into the social because without land rights, the poor uh, in third world and developing countries have no means of sustaining themselves. So that's a social is- aspect as well. Social is about having living wages or wages that you can live from. Uh, so there's a difference between what is a minimum wage and what is a living wage. Uh, minimum wage is a legal construct, uh, but a living uh, minimum wage does not necessarily provide you everything you need to put your kids through school and having enough for hospital uh, treatment, etc. So, so uh, living wage is actually what we're striving for, so that people have some discretionary income that they can use for these unforeseen uh, expenses and don't need to work 16 hours every day to make uh, ends meet. It's about safety and thriving communities, about diversity and equality and health. And of course about slavery, um, because nobody should be forced to work in the situation where they are exploited by somebody else uh, for for either um, profit or the types of gratification. Yeah. And then there's the, the governance side of things, and that uh, relates into stuff like money laundering, uh, bribery, and corruption. Um, it, it relates into tax and investment. Businesses have an obligation to pay their taxes in a fair and equitable way, so that they're supporting the societies where they operate. And then ethics in general and um, making sure that uh, there's oversight provided. So so that's kind of broadly the, the, the three categories under ESG. And then there's, of course, uh, what this podcast is about, purpose. And I think that the purpose ties really nicely into ESG or rather not just ties in, it's almost integral uh, because there's, there's no way you can do ESG without purpose. And there's no way you can do purpose without ESG. If you define your purpose in business, you live it out through what you do in the space of ESG. Um, and, and the other way around, if you if you have an ESG program, it's because you're living by some sort of values that, that mm. defines your purpose. Um, yeah. So, so it ties really nicely together, purpose and sustainability. And it's really yeah. interesting because um, my experience is businesses usually sort of start with one thing and the, the the very act of using your business as a vehicle to do good seems to generate the sense of, 
I want to do more. I want to look at more ways that I can, you know, yeah. do good through the business. So yeah. it just, like you say, it's intrinsically interlinked, but, you yeah. know, one action begets more and you start looking at different areas that you can do good. So exactly. Yeah. I think it's, it's a, exactly just like you said, there's a bit of a sort of a hands-off approach to begin with when people are a little bit scared and say, well, how do we get started on this? And it's probably, uh, there's the mountain in front of me. How am I going to scale it, right? But I mean, one step at a time leads you to want to take the next one. And once you know how to take those steps, then it becomes easier. And it doesn't, it's not so daunting once you get started. I mean, it's not rocket science, right? <laughs> it's just about thinking, applying some, some thinking to it. And then you, everybody can do it, I think. It's, it's just another way to the goal, right? Um, yes. And, <laughs> and to bring, and, and I think to bring business back onto the path that I believe it's supposed to be on, I, I feel like, you know, business has taken a wrong turn. Going down the road 40, 50 years ago of shareholder capitalism felt like a wrong turn on a road. I, I, I recently watched the Netflix documentary on Boeing, and I, I don't know if you've seen it, but if you haven't seen it, and for listeners, Oh, please watch it. It is a masterclass in showing a company that was built on trust and pride and safety, how, you know, when, when they merged and really just started being driven by the dollar, by purely by profits, just went downhill. They went down this wrong path. And I think that's true of business widely. So it's about action and taking those first that first step to bring you back to fulfill what I believe is the true potential of business, which is to serve society's needs and to be a force for good and to be profitable so that everybody wins. Yes. I I couldn't agree more. I think that's exactly it. I mean, we all uh, shareholders through our superannuation funds and pension schemes and whatever else we have. I mean, what's the point of having a, a, a really fat account with your pension uh, account somewhere if you've sold your health away and die early, right? It's no point. So yeah. I mean, this is definitely about having that right balance. And, and fortunately, we're starting to see that the, the, the various different pension funds are really attaching a lot of emphasis to this because they want to see that these things are managed in a balanced way. It's not all about profit. And it's not all about making money. It's about fulfilling the purpose. Um, Absolutely. But, but the interesting thing is those pension funds, the super funds, the ethical superannuation funds are the fastest growing sector, not just in superannuation, but in, in financial services generally. Um, uh, one of my earlier guests on this podcast was Simon Shake, who is co-founder of Future Super. And it's a thoroughly interesting interview about what many non, you know, just normal superannuation funds, where their investments are going that we don't know about um, and what ethical super funds, how they're performing really shows us the, shows us the future where, where this is going. Absolutely. It's, uh, and it's becoming more and more. So it's, it's something that's really on the, on the front of mind for, for all of them, which is good. I think it's, it's to everybody's benefit. It's why you and I are in business, isn't it? (laughs) So, so let's, let's get into the detail now of the competent boards program. Tell us about it. Tell us first about the program. What is it? Yeah. So competent boards is a, 
It's a program that was developed in the US, uh, not by me. I'm a delivery partner uh, here in, in Australia. And um, it was developed by uh, a, a competent boards in, in the US uh, slash Canada. And they've been running it for two and a half years now, launched at Davos in 2019. Uh, and they've got some really heavy, heavy hitters endorsing it, like Paul Pullman from a former CEO of uh, Unilever, Johan Rockström from uh, the Potsdam Institute of Climate, uh, etc. And, and what it is, is that it's a recognition that without education, the boards and the senior executives who have spent their entire lives doing profit-driven and operational risk and uh, all the other traditional business disciplines, uh, how they all of a sudden going to learn some brand new skills. So, and, and if they can't learn the, those brand new skills somewhere in a, a, in a practical manner without going back to university, because there's lots of university courses out there uh, that, that helps with ESG training, but, uh, but they don't have time to do a whole university course. So they, they need something else. So Compton Boards is uh, basically a collection of fireside chats. Uh, there's a curriculum developed together with the uh, University, uh, University of Oxford and Arizona State University, and then some online sessions um, over 24 weeks um, that, that the participants go through. So it's, it's pretty comprehensive, and the speakers are really high level. And, and then at the end, it leads to a designation um, that, uh, that, that people can, can basically use to, to showcase that they understand ESG, and they've had you know, the privilege of going through a training that, uh, that allowed them to, to think critical about these issues. So, so that's, uh, that's what content boards is. And I think personally, I think that's the first place that any business needs to start. It's all good to hire somebody to be the sustainability person, but if nobody else understands what that person is doing, uh, then there's not going to be buy-in from the organization. There's not going to be enough support. There's not going to be understanding for, the, for why they're doing it. And, and that just doesn't lead to a, lead to a good result. So... By having the senior level of the business understanding and enabling them to think critically about this, they also know how to drive it. Um, and that means that you get the right people into the right positions and you get the right support. And that means you can achieve things that, that impact. And yeah, that that's, I mean, it's vital, isn't it, that it's actually driven by the board. Otherwise... Yes. It's just an uphill battle. So whether you're driving ESG and purpose, you know, from a sustainability perspective or a people and culture perspective or a marketing perspective, yeah. you're never going to get the, the traction across the organisation that you need if you don't have the endorsement, the buy-in and the, uh, of the board. And in order to have that, they have to have the knowledge Yes, and exactly. the understanding of what needs to be done. So this is vital. The, the other thing I think that perhaps is, is really important when it comes to, to a training program, it, it has to be comprehensive and it has to cover every single area. Because as we know, in Australia, there's a lot of emphasis on, emphasis on gender equality and getting women into boards and their organisations uh, that help promote women, for example. And, and gender diversity is one aspect of ESG, but it's not the only one. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's another aspect of diversity is, is to, to source uh, from Aboriginal sources, right? But you've you got to have that whole understanding of the entire landscape before you can start drawing a map of where you're going. And I think that's what this does. It helps you. 
Fantastic. And it also brings um, participants together who can exchange ideas, I imagine. Yes, yes, exactly. So it's a, so every session is rounded out by a, 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 an online session. It's online, so it's, a, it's for the whole region. So we have people signed up from India, from Hong Kong, from Australia, New Zealand, etc. So, so it's all online, but uh, there's uh, every every thematic uh, unit is uh, rounded out with an online session where uh, there's some speakers and uh, um, or, or not really speakers, but some some industry professionals who are there to to uh, engage in a conversation with the attendees, so they can ask questions and and be a, um, a breakout rooms to discuss specific issues. So, so there's some some interaction, and then of course there's a network afterwards that uh, they can be be used as a as a way for sparring. Brilliant, brilliant. So, who should do the program? Well, so it's it's senior executives and board members uh, primarily. It's fairly senior level, so we're not saying that it has to be C-suite necessarily, uh, but uh, but it's not for entry level uh, people, and and potentially depend on where sort of in the middle of the organization and what sort of buy-in from the rest of all of, from the upper levels of the organization there is uh, it, it could be possible as well but it's uh, the, 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 it's by application and competent boards in the US actually vet applicants to make sure that the cohort of students is maintained so that the, the networking opportunities afterwards um, can be fully fruitful to everybody uh, in the same way that all the speakers uh, are vetted by uh, competent boards as well to make sure that the, the quality is up there. And um, I suppose that is to, the, the vetting of the applicants, I imagine, is that to ensure that people aren't just doing this as a tick box? Um, uh, partly, um, but but it's also to, to filter out. So, for example, competent boards don't want people who are straight out of university to do this. Yeah. Uh, I mean, unless they have some other life experience <laughs> in the bag before that, but but yeah. not not the the typical twenty three year old straight out of university, a twenty four year old uh, is, is not the uh, it's not for them. It's for people yeah. who have experience in business uh, and 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 who have reached a certain level of seniority and demonstrated results. So that it's uh, I mean, we want to have practical discussions, not hypothetical or theoretical discussions. Um, and, and we can only get that by, by actually having people in the room who know how to get to the point in a yep. pretty okay. straight and concise manner. And presumably you need to be on a board? Uh, if you want to attend, there's two streams. So there's a board stream and there's an executive stream. And the reason yep. for that is that the board stream, the attendees at the board stream tend to have slightly different uh, line of questioning. Uh, mm -hmm. compared to the executives um, so to facilitate the discussion and make sure that everybody get the maximum out of it we split it into these two streams so okay. for the board stream yes uh, and if uh, if if you don't have a board role then it's the executive stream. okay brilliant and so for listeners of this podcast um you know, if if you're on a board, then definitely this is something to look at. If you're if you're a senior executive with experience, again, this is something to look at. Um, but even if you you know if you don't fit the bill of those two criteria, you're an influencer. You know, who can you influence? Who would benefit from this? Think about that, and um, and we will include on the show notes links to this program. And, yeah, I can tell you it is absolutely comprehensive, um, so very well worth a look and well worth 
sharing with others who you think could get value out of it. And let's face it, who wouldn't get value out of something like this now in business at a board level or, or executive level? So, so with that, is, I also... <laughs> everybody should do this at the moment because it's, we need a base level of understanding to discuss these issues. And at the moment, that base level is just not there. So why else? Why, why should someone do it? Why now? Yeah, because it's such a hot topic in the market at the moment. Uh, ESG, you hear it everywhere, and uh, that's both good and bad, of course. When when somebody get, uh, some, something gets too hot, uh, <laughs> there's also an influx of of uh, of uh, of people who are trying to make a quick buck on it. Um, but that's why it's even more important to actually be really skilled on what is up and what's down. Um, yeah. So so making sure that the whatever influence or where you're taking your influence from is really critical. And uh, I think that, I mean, I've seen examples of, of, of some offering out there where uh, you say, but the person who's speaking here doesn't have any experience in this field. And so that's like me walking in and starting to perform dentist's work in the <laughs> dentist clinic. Somewhere. Oh my God, that's, that's frightening. That's <laughs> right. frightening. That is frightening, right? Um, yeah. So you want you want the, the real people to help you, right? And the, there's no classific uh, uh, qualifications for this. There's no licensing scheme. So in that sense, anybody can do it. So it makes it even more important uh, to to do a due diligence on who it is that uh, that that you're dealing with. Yeah, yeah. So can you tell us um, what can a participant expect to get out of it? Yeah, so so the the feedback is uh, is overwhelming. That uh, actually, there's a hundred percent of people who uh, attended in this training who recommend it. Um, so I don't know how many other trainings have that kind of uh, <laughs> that that's kind amazing of, uh, rating. Yeah, um, and and everybody that uh, I've spoken to are, are really um, raving about it. So it's it's kind of a, one of those things that sells sells itself by word of mouth, basically. Of course, you can you can expect to get an understanding uh, of uh, ESG issues. So there's 12 modules. Um, they're focused on different areas. One is on, for example, on slavery and supply chain, human rights. One is on climate issues. One is on diversity issues. So it's it's 12 uh, trainings that basically covers um, everything you need to know. So that's that's what you get out of it, uh, a knowledge base, and then you get a designation. So um, that is something that that um, obviously can be used on a resume, uh, on LinkedIn profile, whatever, and uh, and then you get the network. Brilliant. Yeah, so a Brilliant. little bit like a, a, a mini MBA in um, in sustainability or ESG. Fantastic. And uh, and look, we're not going to talk pricing on this, but but. I, I, you shared with me the pricing and the the value for money is it's unquestionable. Um, so yeah, I think I think this is brilliant. I think it is something. It's a program that is needed right now. And you know, when when you see the latest Edelman Trust Barometer findings, for example, which show that societal leadership is now a core expectation of business. Yes. It is expected that CEOs take a stand on societal issues. I, I just don't believe you can af afford to take a superficial approach to this. And, no, um, and the Competent Boards program 
really leads you through the key aspects and, you know, getting, getting a, a clear understanding um, of what you need to do in those areas. So 24 weeks, 12 modules, um, and I believe you're also offering a discount That's right. for our listeners. That's right. So anybody who wants to uh, sign on to this uh, can get a 10% discount, quoting the uh, discount code FLAM for love and money to make it easy to remember flam with the welcome any application brilliant thank you we'll put we'll put all those details in the show notes as well so thank you i want to um i want to ask you a couple of final questions so just Mm -hmm. for business leaders um who who are considering their purpose or their esg journey what apart from apart from saying yes look at the program but what's yeah. what's some general advice you would have for them well i'll definitely say that uh, yeah, step number one if you're not very familiar with uh, esg or don't have uh, an esg or sustainability person in your organization it's a uh, it's, it's really important that you try to educate yourself on on this and whether that is uh, reading, uh, or whether that's uh, going on to, for example, Responsible Investment Association, Australia, Asia, uh, RIA, uh, have a lot of resources. Uh, and while it is the Responsible Investment Association, a lot of them are really applicable to running businesses as well. So have a look in all of their materials in there. It might give you most of an angle from the investor side of things, but thinking about it you can very easily flip it around and say okay that means i need to do this this and this Uh, so so there's lots of resources available out there you can probably educate yourself it's going to take a little bit longer um compared to if you do a program right Uh, with with some structured information um so so i think i think that's the first step get educated and then of course say provided that uh, given that you're listening to this podcast you already know about purpose and and have an interest in that. So I would assume that you, you have a, an idea of where you're moving with your purpose uh, or want to have an idea. So I'd say, get clear on what is the purpose of your business and then figure out then how do you achieve that, right? Because once you have your purpose clear, you, you also can start thinking, okay, which area on the ESG should I try to apply my, my, my resources to? Because there's a lot of areas you can apply your resources to and probably... You can't do it at all, unfortunately. As much as this pains me to say, you <laughs> probably can't do all. It is a journey, and uh, I think uh, so, so. So it's really about finding out what is the what is the best uh, area for me. The best area, obviously, is modern slavery, right? Because I, I've I've seen kids in factories in China, and I've uh, helped remediate cases of these things. So for me, that's really something that that burns in my heart, right? But um, for others, it might be the, the climate aspect of things. For others, again, it might be um, making sure that there's enough uh, indigenous participation in your business, etc. So, so it's all about choosing and it's try not to exclude. But of course, any choice means also a choice of not choosing something else, um, mm. especially if there's not resources to do everything. And, and then perhaps also look at where, where could there potentially be some opportunities in this. Um, because I think that opportunities are rife in this area. It's um, once you start thinking about things from a slightly different angle, you, you will realize that, hang on, there was this, I hadn't thought about that before. Maybe that's an opportunity and maybe that can drive 
some additional revenue or some additional growth that we can then turn into some other initiatives that can that can do that and and drive your purpose and your impact through that way um yeah brilliant brilliant thank you Carsten and yeah I guess your 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 particular passion for modern slavery takes us right back to that story you shared with us about touring that that Indian factory yes um so that that connects there's a very clear connection to you know your life experiences and and how that's really molded um shaped your purpose um exactly in life so I just want to finish up with a final question um which I I know will be deeply relevant to you We're 2022 recording this interview and the target date for the UN Global Goals is 2030. That's eight years, only eight years. We're getting closer and closer. And as as a member of the generation who actually has the privilege to to take action, we have the opportunity to take action, Um, unlike probably future generations following in our footsteps. Do you have a message for the business leaders of our generation today? Yes. I think, uh, like you said, it's time is really short. And uh, while we all grew up with that, we have to set aspirational targets because otherwise we're not going to move fast enough forward. Um, I think this is really imperative. Everybody's moving on this at the moment. So I say those who don't are probably in danger of being left behind. Uh, when we reach 2030 and uh, from my perspective obviously with the with the business I set up certify um, we want to make sure that these issues get measured so that they can get managed Uh, so I say and this is one of the key shortcomings in in reviewing all the different modern slavery statements that are up on the government register that I've I've done Um, there's very little measurements in it Uh, very much aspiration very little actual concrete evidence of anything. So I'd say get firm on, on starting to measure your, your aspects. And it doesn't have to be the full package to start with. Start with something. And like you said before, Carolyn, once you get started, then it's, it's one foot ahead of the next and you realize I can do this and I can do that. So, so start thinking about that um, because that's the only way we're going to move forward. And I don't think history will judge us very kindly if we don't move forward. So, Carsten yeah. Primdahl, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us. I've really enjoyed chatting to you. Likewise. Thank you, Carolyn. And thank you for listening in, everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode of the For Love and Money podcast. If you'd like to take a deeper dive into the purpose movement, visit us at thecauseeffect.com.au. And remember, doing good is good for business. So if you're not doing good, then what are you doing?